Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Let's talk about the Knowlton Papers. Knowlton's grandson donated these papers, which consist almost entirely of letters, probably with the idea that the Historical Society could edit them and publish them in time for the centennial of the Borden murders, which would have been 1992. At any rate, it's interesting to go through these letters. You can get them through the Fall River Historical Society. They're published in a single volume, so they're out there if you want them. The letters fall into a bunch of different categories. The least interesting would be the fan mail, essentially, that he got both from the public and from other attorneys. They basically just praise the job he's doing or has done. They're letters of support. They're not worth much. I didn't bother to read most of those. Another category consists of the unsolicited letters from the public telling him basically how to do his job. There were some theories that were contained in these letters or proposed by these individuals that we've heard or encountered in some fashion over the years ever since. One of them is that Lizzie killed her parents when she was nude. I know there was a movie made, a a television movie made, decades ago involving that theory. There was also a letter or a couple of letters to Knowlton suggesting that Mr. Borden and his wife had been chloroformed or somehow rendered unconscious through chemical means, some kind of anesthesia, and that that's why there were no signs of resistance. A number of people wrote Knowlton and said, don't look for a hatchet. Lizzie killed her father and stepmother with the irons, or the flats, as they're called. The problem is the irons weren't sharp enough, and these wounds were caused clearly caused by sharp weapons. Somebody suggested to Knowlton that what Lizzie had done was she took her father's dress jacket, put it on, killed him, took it off, folded it up, and put it under his head. And he was found with his head on a pillow, and I think the pillow was resting on top of his folded coat or jacket. I suppose that's possible. It was actually a pretty ingenious suggestion. Knowlton actually cribs it. He takes that idea and uses it in his closing argument. He doesn't build his argument around it, but he said, hey, if you're wondering what she wore for protective clothing, here's a possibility. The problem is that in order to get it under her father's head, she would have gotten her sleeves bloody. So she would have had to, at the very least, roll up the sleeves of her dress or whatever she was wearing before she slid this thing under her father's head. But I guess it's possible it could have been done. Some of the advice or suggestions was ridiculously obvious, like look under loose floorboards, look in the stove, look in the piano search the barn, look in the well. There was a disused well on the property. Search the outhouse, that sort of thing. At least one person, and I think more, more than one, said, in case you hadn't noticed, in case you didn't realize how important this was, nobody's come forward to claim authorship of this note. Did you think about that? I mean, seriously, people are writing the prosecutor weeks or months into the case and saying, maybe you didn't think about the issue of the note. It's pretty amazing that people would think that little of a prosecutor, of an experienced prosecutor. There are some interesting and helpful correspondence between Knowlton and Pillsbury. Pillsbury, as you know, was the attorney general. He was going to try the case, 
Knowlton was probably going to be his his assistant. And then Pillsbury got sick. And in the spring, probably two or three months before the trial, maybe it might have been as little as six weeks before the trial, Pillsbury gave bad news. Knowlton really didn't want to try the case, but he was stuck with it. And he ended up asking, arranging, borrowing another assistant, a district attorney from Essex County, which is north of Boston. It's on the North Shore. The guy's name was William Moody, and he was a good trial attorney. He was on the young side. The problem is he didn't have a lot of time to prepare. Knowlton left him most of the direct examination. So it was Moody who was bringing all the government witnesses in pretty much and going through their direct testimony. And then I think Knowlton did the cross-examination and the closing argument. Moody did the opening statement. I think the fact that Moody came on late and the fact that he didn't have more time to prepare to a certain degree showed in the trial there was one major embarrassment in terms of the testimony that I have not yet discussed. And we'll get to that when I talk about the trial. But I think that was probably due to a lack of time, just the inevitable mistakes and oversights that will happen when you're rushing to put together a case. I think Moody had about two weeks, two solid weeks to get everything digested, organized, and ready. I'm not sure he had much more time than that. And even if you devote an entire two weeks to preparing for a case like this, it's not enough time, especially if part of those two weeks is going to be devoted to reading the discovery in the first place, reading the records and then interviewing the witnesses and getting them ready, that's definitely not enough time. Some of the other letters that Knowlton had were from nuts, just absolute crackpots. There were several clairvoyants. They would say things like, I'm a spiritualist. I believe in communication with the dead. Let me know if I can help. There was one who said, I have great supernatural visions. I had one of the murderer. I could pick him out of a crowd. Just let me know. I'll come to Fall River, and if I see him, I'll point him out to you. Can you imagine putting that guy on the stand? Can you imagine? And he points out somebody as a defendant, as the murderer, and when he's asked how he he knew that, like, were you there? Did the guy confess to you? No, I saw him in a dream, in a vision. I mean, the idea that someone would offer to testify to that and expect a rational person to take him up on it is just amazing. There were some people that had crackpot crazy ideas about how you could tell whether Lizzie was lying. And I think these people, at least one of them, claimed to be a medical doctor. One guy said, when you ask her a question having to do with the murders, look at her eyes. And when she blinks, if all you can see is the dark part of her eye, whatever that is, the iris or whatever it is, then she is probably telling you the truth. But if her eyes open enough so that you can see the whites of her eyeballs above the eye, above the colored part of the eye, then that means she's probably lying. I'm just amazed that somebody would actually take the time to write this garbage and send it off and expect it to be taken seriously. And then at least one person wrote Knowlton and said, it's a well-known fact that when a murder victim dies and has seen the assailant, as he or she is dying, she's looking at the assailant who's attacking her, killing her or him, that will be imprinted on the victim's eyeballs. So quick, quick, get to Mrs. Borden, get to Mr. Borden, lift the eyelids, look at the eyeballs. If they were actually face-to-face with their killer, this will be imprinted on their eyeballs 
it'll be like a slide. You know those old slides you would hold up to the light, colored slides, and you'd see the image? It's like you would see the image of the killer in the eyeball, and all you need to do is get a camera and photograph it, and then you've got proof. What can I say? I wonder what Knowlton thought. Knowlton must have just, you know, he must have just shaken his head when he got a letter like that and said, I had no idea there were so many nuts in the world. There were some fake confessions. One guy wrote and said, I am Mr. Borden's illegitimate son. He abandoned my mother. He broke her heart. She died in a lunatic asylum. I hold him responsible for her death, her unhappy life. He promised to support me and educate me, pay for my education. He reneged on that. I've been brooding about this for years. I finally decided to get my revenge. I think Lizzie knows who I am. I think she knows I'm the one who killed her father. She's trying to keep this secret. If you press her on this, I think she will admit that I'm telling the truth. What's interesting to me about this letter is that it parallels, it it mirrors the book that Arnold Brown wrote, which was about Lizzie Borden. The last part of the title was the final chapter. I forget. It was Lizzie Borden, the myth, the murder, the final chapter, something like that. And his premise, his factual premise and the framework of his book is identical to this letter. Now, Brown claims he got all this information from the son-in-law of an eyewitness, a young woman who was an eyewitness to the aftermath of the murders. There was a woman named Ellen Egan who lived in Fall River, and she happened to be walking by the Borden house, and the murderer came out, and she saw him, and he had this really unpleasant, distinctive smell. And she kind of suppressed the memory, and then years later it came out, and so on and so forth. But it's identical. The facts are identical to this letter. Now, that may just be pure coincidence, or there may be something behind it. I don't know. It's just interesting that it's essentially the same fact pattern. There was one guy who was a conductor, a train conductor in Arkansas. His last name happened to be Knowlton, and he was reading about the case in the local newspaper. And he sent a letter to Knowlton, and he said, hey, we've got the same last name. How about that? And you want to know something really funny? My mother's maiden name was Borden. Wow. Then he goes into this long, boring, irrelevant history of his father, where he was born and what he did with his life and stuff. It has nothing to do with the case. And he wraps up the letter saying, it would be great if you could send me uh, material every day during the trial. Like, make sure to mail me the local newspaper and maybe give me your thoughts on the case every day. Make sure to send it every day. After I read it, I'll pass it along to my mother. She's bored. She's an invalid. She doesn't have anything to do. So this will really perk her up. This is just unbelievable. This guy's a train conductor. That means he has to deal with the public, I'm pretty sure. That means he has to have some social skills. He has to have some grounding in reality. The idea that someone would be so insensitive, so socially inept, so out of touch with reality, that he thinks that because he has the same last name as the prosecutor, that that gives him the right to impose on a prosecutor who's trying to put together the most sensational, famous murder trial of the century. It's really incredible. I'm sorry to use that word so much, but I don't know how else to describe it. One other interesting thing I saw in these letters was around August 15th, Knowlton wrote a fairly short letter to Marshall Hilliard, and at the end of it, he said, what's this business about Medley being the first person up in the loft? 
So here we are 11 days after the murders, and the inquest has already happened. That was done by August 11th. This is four days after the inquest had ended. This is 10 days before the probable cause hearing starts. Knowlton is saying, I hear that Medley is claiming that he was the first one in the loft. Again, why is it taking so long for this information to get out? I suspect Medley was trying to get the lay of the land. He was trying to find out from the other officers who had been on the Borden property fairly early on Thursday, sometime before noon, They, whoever had arrived before noon, to feel them out and see if any of them were going to make the same claim that he would like to make about being the first one up there. And he was probably doing it in a fairly subtle way. And after a week or so, he figured he could just get away with saying this. It didn't appear that anybody else had been thinking about trying to prove or disprove Lizzie's alibi. So he thought, I'll just fill that role and this will get me some attention and I'll be given some credit and I'll be patted on the head and maybe this will mean a promotion for me. That's just my theory. But I think it's interesting that Knowlton doesn't hear about this until 11 days after the murder. Knowlton talks about a couple of things having to do with the issue of insanity. One is he's trying to find out whether or not Lizzie had actually written a letter to her friends in Marion, the friends that she was planning to visit on Monday, Monday after the murders. If the murders had never happened, Lizzie was intending to go out and visit her friends at Marion. And these young women were renting a place out there. And supposedly she had written one of her friends named Lizzie Johnson to say, I will bring my sharp hatchet. I've been testing the hatchets we have here at the house. I've got a nice sharp one. I'm going to bring it out. I'm going to be in charge of chopping the wood. Now, I have no idea whether this actually was in the letter. If Lizzie had written that and had been involved in the murders, that is another example of just utter recklessness. I mean, if she'd been planning the murders and thinking about using a hatchet or knew that a hatchet was going to be involved, even if she wasn't the one who was actually going to be wielding it, the idea that she would put something like that in a letter, it's hard to believe. But given the reckless things we saw her do, that we had seen her do over the course of the case, it's not unbelievable. There's a possibility she would have done that. It's also possible that this is just kind of a little urban myth that happened to be part of the Borden story, just like Mr. Borden had been accused of cutting people's feet off in order to fit them into coffins. This might have been just as fake. But a newspaper, one of the local newspapers had published this rumor about this reference to a hatchet and chopping wood and so on. And Hilliard sent Medley out to talk to Lizzie Johnson. And by the time he got out there, Jennings already had a warning, had a heads up. Jennings had probably seen this article in the local paper. And he had notified Lizzie Johnson and probably the other young women that were at the cottage and told them all, you don't need to talk to the police. You're under no obligation to talk to them. If you don't want to, don't. Jennings probably sent out his associate named Phillips. Phillips did a lot of his legwork. Phillips went to interview witnesses. Phillips tried to talk to the drugstore witnesses, the poison witnesses. They wouldn't talk to him. But Phillips may well have gone out to Marion and talked to these women. But at any rate, when Medley went out to talk to them, they said, Attorney Jennings told us we don't have to speak to you. So the police never got anything. But in one of his letters to Pillsbury, Knowlton says, I think this story is probably true, and if we can prove it, it means insanity. That is a good segue into the whole issue of insanity. One of the things that Knowlton came to believe fairly early on 
was that Lizzie was definitely involved in the murders. Either she committed them herself or she had somebody do it for her. He figured the reason they couldn't find the murder weapon and the reason they couldn't find the bloody clothing was because somebody else had committed the murders or at the very least had taken the stuff off the property right away at her request. At the same time, without the murder weapon, without the bloody clothing, and without a confession or evidence from an accomplice, without an accomplice spilling the beans or getting caught if there was an accomplice, this would be a tough case to prove. Because if you can't prove there was an accomplice and you can't locate and identify the murder weapon and you can't come up with any bloody clothing and you can't prove that clothing was burned in the stove, you're looking at such a tight window for Mr. Borden's murder that it's going to be very difficult to convince a jury that Lizzie could have done that. This is a long way of saying that Knowlton was anticipating a not guilty verdict or at best a hung jury, but he was pessimistic from the start. And so he was looking for a way out and he was anticipating that the grand jury would return an indictment, that the police would expect him to pursue the case. And he was looking for a way to avoid that and at the same time save face, for him to save face and not look like a coward, not dump the case and walk away from it. And let me just say as an aside, before I forget, having worked in a district attorney's office, I understand the importance of having a good relationship with the police. The district attorney gets elected. He's not appointed. This was true in Massachusetts. It's true in Maine. I think it's true pretty much everywhere. You need the support of the police. It's almost impossible to get elected unless you are in a really liberal county that is kind of anti-police. If you're in your average American county, somewhere in the spectrum of normal politics, it matters whether the police support you. If the police don't support you, you've got problems. You have to have a good working relationship with them because they will go to the press and complain. If they think that you're not supporting them, they'll get word out to the papers. And that, that's the kind of story that the papers love to run. Of course they do. District attorney is feuding with local police. Local police say he's not sympathetic to them. He's soft on criminals, etc. Not only is it bad publicity, but actually police know a lot of people in the community. In the course of a career as a police officer, even if you've only been a police officer for a few years, part of your job is to kind of have the, your ear to the ground. You know the local businessmen, you know a lot of people in the community, and most of these guys are such are so straight, they're so square, that they belong to churches. Nowadays, their kids play Little League, and they're in community soccer, and they just know a lot of people, both professionally and personally, and so they have influence in that sense as well. If they're talking you down as a district attorney, that's a problem. It's not just what the newspapers or TV news might say. It's whether 125 officers from Fall River are bad-mouthing you. So that puts some pressure on Knowlton. I think Knowlton had political ambitions. And in fact, I think he succeeded Pillsbury as the Attorney General of Massachusetts. I know that Knowlton became the Attorney General shortly after this trial, and he had been in politics before he became DA. He'd been in the state legislature. So part of the calculus here, part of what he needs to do and recognize and accept is that if the police expect him to prosecute this case and bring it to trial, it's a big risk politically 
to say no and walk away from it. Looking at this case, he never complains about the mistakes that the police make, which he had every right to do. I never see anything in his correspondence that indicates he was publicly bad-mouthing them or even doing it privately. But he must have thought between the mistakes that the police had made, plus the fact that they didn't have the murder weapon, they didn't have a confession, they had no proof of an accomplice, and they couldn't find any bloody clothing, they weren't going to be able to convict her. They probably weren't. So as an out, as a way to try to save face, he approached Attorney Jennings and he said, how about we have Lizzie evaluated? Let's see if she's insane. It's fascinating to me because I have never seen or heard of a prosecutor raising the insanity defense. That's what defense attorneys do. That's what defense attorneys do when their client is caught red-handed, when there's no question that it was their client who committed the act And their only hope is to show that the client is so crazy, so detached from reality, that he's not criminally responsible. So think of like John Hinckley, who shot President Reagan 40 years ago. He had some delusional belief that he was going to win over Jodie Foster, that she would fall in love with him. I think that was the motive. Like he thought this was Taxi Driver, essentially, the movie. That's the kind of craziness you need. And even that isn't guaranteed to get you a not guilty by reason of insanity. The idea that the prosecution would go to the defense and say, hey, let's cooperate. Let's have her undergo extensive psychiatric testing is amazing. And by doing that, he was tipping his hand. He was showing, he was admitting to the defense that he had a weak case, which they already sort of knew. But this confirmed to them how little confidence he had in the prospects of a conviction. When he approached Jennings, I'm sure he knew it was a long shot. And Jennings got back to him and said, we can't do this because any agreement to have her evaluated would be a concession that she had been involved. And our position is she was not involved in any way. Despite having Jennings turn him down, Knowlton said to Pillsbury, we can still try to pursue an insanity outcome. I'm not sure how he could have done this without the defense cooperating, but I suppose if he had gotten evidence somehow that she was insane, he could have saved face by saying, we're not going to prosecute her. She's mentally ill. I don't know. I think he was just following every lead because this seemed to him the best way out. So there's some correspondence in the collected letters between him and a prominent psychiatrist, a guy who worked at McLean Hospital, which is probably the premier mental hospital in greater Boston. And that psychiatrist writes him back. And there may be letters from two psychiatrists, I can't remember. But whatever, whether it was one or two psychiatrists, the response was, we see no evidence of insanity based on what we're reading in the papers. And then the other thing that Knowlton did was he got a state police detective to go and interview some family members and some people that had known the Borden family for years, like Southard Miller, the man who had employed Mr. Borden when Mr. Borden was a young man and working as a Finnish carpenter. Southard Miller, believe it or not, was still around. They interviewed him. They interviewed some neighbors. They interviewed, I think, Mr. Harrington, who didn't like Mr. Borden. 
but he was a family member. And basically what they were looking for was any evidence that Lizzie or members of her immediate family had behaved in a way that could be considered insane. It's pretty primitive. It's a pretty ridiculous primitive way to explore whether there is the possibility of an insanity plea or some kind of insanity finding. The idea that neighbors would be able to give you an answer on that is ridiculous. At any rate, that led nowhere. And so Knowlton realized at that point that he was almost certainly going to have to try the case. So we will finish for this week, and we still have some things to talk about. Lizzie's arrest, some things that happened while she was being held in custody, and we'll talk a little bit about the trial. And also, I wanted you to know that I have a forensic psychiatrist who has kindly agreed to come on and be interviewed. I'm really excited about it. She's a really fun person to talk to. She's got a lot of experience, and she has a lot of thoughts on the case. So that will be coming up soon. I will give you a heads up at least a week ahead of time. I hope you join me for our next episode. Until then, take care.